closely at the book of Ephesians, you would discover that it kind of neatly divides into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4 through 6, which we begin chapter 4 today. Chapters 1 through 3 are usually referred to as the doctrinal section of the book. While chapters 4 through 6 are sometimes described as the practical section of the book. Most of the letters that you read of Paul, if you read carefully, you'll see the first part of the letter is always doctrine. Always theologically deep. And then he says, here's how you live in response to that doctrine, that theology we just taught. So here in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the doctrine section, Paul pointed out to uh, believers that we have been redeemed by Christ. You have been reconciled into one body. You've been made into God's household. You have become God's family. You have become God's church. And then beginning here in chapter 4, through the end of the letter, conduct becomes the primary focus of the book of Ephesians. You notice there in verse 1, you have this word, therefore. That word is extremely important. It marks the transition in the book. That's how we know that a transition is coming from doctrine to, to practicality, to living out this doctrine. Again, it marks the transition. It indicates that the practical section, instruction that Paul's going to give us is coming. And that's what the rest of this book's going to be about. Here's the gospel. Here's the, the doctrine of the gospel. And here's how you as a Christian live that out practically in your life. And he's going to deal with several different areas in the remainder of the letter. Paul is saying because you've been redeemed by Christ, because you've been reconciled into one body, because you've been made into God's church, therefore... Walk in a manner worthy of all of that. That's what he's saying. Walk in a manner worthy of everything that I have just told you. This call to walk worthy is the main theme of verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16 teach us what is essential for a healthy church. So, doctrine, practical application of that, verses 1 through 16. Here's how this doctrine works out in the life of a church that is healthy. How the church grows. In our text today, don't worry, we're going to stay 1 through 6. We're not going to do 1 through 16. Paul defines walking worthy as walking unified. This is Christian unity. So walk worthy is to walk in unity. So if you're looking at your handout there, the main idea that we see... And it's rather long this week. A healthy church walks worthy of salvation by maintaining spiritual unity. A healthy church walks worthy of salvation by maintaining spiritual unity. And I gave you a definition of unity there. That comes right from Webster's Dictionary. The state of being united or joined as a... What's the next word? A whole. The state of being made one. That's what Paul's going to talk about us. All of us as individual Christians within the church, we are one people and there's to be unity of us, among us. Now, I'm going to explain this concept of unity as we go through here. So if you're looking at your handout, you see in verses 1 through 3, the importance of unity. The importance of unity. The word importance goes in your blank there on your handout. Notice what he says there in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
Again, I want to point out, he begins this section with that word therefore. He's drawing a conclusion based on what he's already told us in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 4, verse 1 is like a hinge. It's, it operates as a hinge between the first three chapters and the last three chapters. In chapters 1 through 3, we know we have been blessed, Paul said, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been made alive from the dead. You were once dead, but God made you alive. You've been brought into the body of Christ, your fellow heirs. Even though you're Gentiles, you've been brought into the family of God. All of which Paul brings to a conclusion and says, This is the glorious grace of God that has done these things for you. Therefore, because of God's grace, believers are to be obedient to the commands Paul is about to give us in the rest of this letter. And here's what I want to say about that. Grace creates gratitude. Grace creates gratitude which motivates obedience. That's how we're to look at the remainder of this letter. Chapters 4 through 6. Grace creates gratitude. He's pointed that out to us, which motivates obedience for us as the people of God. Notice there, after the word therefore, notice how Paul refers to himself as a what? A prisoner for or in the Lord. That's an interesting statement to make about yourself, is it not? The idea here is that Paul is expressing, don't miss this, the idea behind what Paul is saying, that he's expressing his relationship that he has with Jesus. And he's expressing that relationship as being a relationship of deep communion with Jesus. You don't go around claiming to be a prisoner of someone else, do you? Jesus is pointing here, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. It tells us something about how he views his relationship with Jesus. There was this deep abiding communion with Christ. You may say, okay, so what? This gives extreme authority to what Paul is about to say. Including the fact he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write these words. This gives authority to what he's saying. What Paul says is to be viewed as coming from someone who is very serious about his relationship with Jesus. Right? You claim to be a prisoner of someone, you're connected them into a vital way. But notice he says... Notice the next word there is to walk. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, it's not the next word, but it's the word we're going to look at, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word walk there, you need to pay close attention to that because it's going to show up several times in chapters 4 through 6. This won't be the last time you see it. There will be many more times this word will show up or the idea of this word. The word means to conduct one's life. That's what that means. Walk. How we conduct our lives. Because of the gospel Paul explained in the first three chapters, he now wants the believers to know how they are to conduct their lives. That's the third time I've said that, right? The third time is the charm. They say in most cases someone has to hear something three times before it ever sinks in. He now wants believers to know how they're to conduct their lives. In particular, conducting their lives in keeping with the gospel. Notice that Paul urges. He says, I urge you. To walk worthy. Some of you have the translation use the word beseech. He urges the Christian. The idea is that of a passionate pleading. How many of you ever urged somebody to do something? You really get kind of what? You get into that. You're exhorting. You're, You're extremely passionate about that. Paul passionately pleads for us, the believers he pleads for the church, to walk, notice what he says, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, walk worthy of this calling. What is he talking about? The call to which you have been called that he says there 
is this. It is the sovereign calling of God to salvation. So you look at this word, you look at this phrase here. He's talking about, he is talking to walk worthy of your salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You go back to chapter 1 verses 4 through 5, it says that Paul called us, or God called us before the foundation of the world. So this call here is the sovereign call of God to salvation. So what is Paul telling us to walk worthy of? Our salvation, the fact that you've been redeemed and reconciled and set free and saved into the family of God, you need to walk worthy of that. That word worthy has the idea of a weighted balance on a scale. Uh, how many of you, some of you here remember the scales? You put something on it, right? And then you put something else on it. And what were you trying to do? Get a, them to come up even, right? So here's the scale. On one side is God's grace. What happens if you put God's grace on the scale? Man, it's heavy, right? Boom, it sinks down. But here's what Paul is saying. Walk worthy. Your life in response to that grace is to be put on that scale. And guess what the scale is supposed to do? It's supposed to come in about. Now what happens some days? But our life over the course of time is supposed to do that. That's what it means. God's grace is so weighty, but your life is to be worthy of that grace. It's to be lived in response to that. The idea is on the one side of the scale, the wonderful gospel of grace toward us in Jesus. And on the other side is our conduct, which should match that salvation. Our daily living should correspond to that of being a child of God. We profess Christ, our life, or to be worthy of that profession, worthy of that salvation. What does worthy look like? What do you think worthy looks like? I look at what Paul said there. I am a prisoner of who? The Lord. Paul had surrendered his life to the Lordship of Jesus. And what had happened to Paul? Where is he at when he writes this letter? He is where? In prison. He's been in prison, but in prison for proclaiming the gospel. I look at Paul's example here. I'm thinking, that's a worthy life for the God. Paul sees the gospel. He sees the grace of God so so rich and so wonderful, he's willing to commit his life to be put in prison for the gospel. That's Paul's walking worthy. Now you're saying, well, uh, I've never put in prison for the gospel, and I certainly hope that that never happens. Now you may never go to prison for obeying Jesus, but as a born-again believer, you are called to be sacrificially obedient. Do you realize that nothing's off the table for you as a child of God? We like to do that, right? We like to move things off the table in our lives. But nothing with God is to be moved off the table. Your life as a believer, as a Christian, is to be lived in light of the gospel. You're not just saved by the gospel. You're also to live by the gospel. I had a friend of mine a long time ago says that Christians need to have what we call gospel glasses. Why do you wear your glasses? So you can see reality, right? Put on your gospel glasses and you're to look at life through the gospel glasses and you're to see everything in your life through the gospel. Your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your work relationships, your family relationships. We're to live our lives looking through these glasses of the gospel. Paul's referring to himself here as a prisoner of Jesus. It gives us a good idea of what that means. In other words, for the professing Christian, 
Listen, Jesus is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. To know Jesus is to have Him as Lord of all of life. Nothing is off the table. Christians are to walk in step with Jesus under His Lordship. Do we understand that, church? That Jesus is Lord. He's our Lord, which means He has authority over our life. And we surrender everything about our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. Nothing gets moved off the table. Everything is put before Him, and He is Lord of that. In verse 2, we see what it looks like to walk worthy. These are the qualities that preserve unity. And it should be understood here that unity, listen to me, don't miss this, this is talking about spiritual unity. Alright? Unity in the Gospel. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. That implies a, a, a long, a lifelong process. It doesn't mean a few months out of the year, a few days out of the week. Now we all have setbacks, but the overall pattern should be one of growth in these godly character qualities. And here's what I want you to understand. Don't miss this. These qualities are to be lived out in community, not in isolation. They are to be lived out as the church. There's no such thing, you've heard this, right, as a long ranger Christian. Some people try that, but it doesn't work really well. Paul is saying here, these qualities, these things are, we are one. And we'll see this more as we go through here. They're to be lived out in community. They're to be lived out as the church. Notice here, we walk worthy and we preserve spiritual unity. Notice what it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How do we walk worthy? Paul says, here's how you do that. To preserve spiritual unity, we need humility. Humility means lowliness of mind. That's what that means. Humility is the opposite of what, church? Pride. Which is what the Bible says, the root of what? All evil or all sin. Pride is the number one enemy of unity. Pride is the number one enemy of, mu- of unity. Excuse me. Pride is being filled with your what? Self. Pride is all about me. Humility is recognizing that all we are and all we have are due to God's grace. First thing about humility, it means being Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. The proud person trusts in who? Me. He thinks he can do it. In our day, we often hear this in our culture. You've got to believe in yourself, right? That's the thing these days in our culture. You just got to believe in yourself. Get in touch with what? The real you. Well, I think we do a good enough job of that. We don't need to get any more in touch with ourselves. No, the humble Christian trusts in who? He trusts in Jesus. Secondly, humility doesn't mean uh, dumping on yourselves. Instead, the humble person does this. He recognizes that God has graciously given him all his abilities and that He's to use those for God's glory and for God's purposes. Every gift you have, you are to be thankful to God for. Not prideful about those things, but be grateful to God that He's given you the abilities that He's given you. And by the way, if you're a Christian, He's given you those abilities for what? For building up the church, for advancing the gospel. And you're not to brag about those gifts and those abilities, but you're to use those for God's glory and His purpose. Notice next, to preserve spiritual unity, we need gentleness. Now, some of us men right now, we're going, hmm, 
That's a sissy word. That's a, that's a woman's word. Some translations use the word meekness. If you got one of them, you're looking at that, and you're a man, you're going, no, that's not me. I'm not to be meek. Because we often associate what with meekness? Weakness, right. We don't, men don't like that. Gentleness has the idea, listen, gentleness has the idea of strength under control. That makes it better for you men, right? Strength, but you have it under control. It pictures a person who controls his temper and does not retaliate or seek revenge. According to Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. According to Galatians 6, 1, listen to this. Gentleness is how we are to care for one another. You need to make note of this verse and listen and ponder and meditate on this verse at points and times in the remainder of your Christian life. It says in uh, excuse me, Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, so who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. If anyone, if who? Anyone is caught in a transgression. Transgression is talking about sin. And notice the word caught there. It has the idea of a trap. If he is ensnared in that, if that has a grip on his life. Brothers, if anyone, if any fellow believer is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What does that tell you about a brother who gets caught in sin, who gets in a bad place in his life and that sin has a hold of him? You who are spiritual, what are you supposed to do, church? You are to do what? Restore him. But you do it with a spirit of gentleness. It's interesting to note that Jesus used humility and gentleness to describe himself, did he not? Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So man, Jesus was even meek and gentle. He had strength, but he kept it under control, right? Notice next there, to preserve spiritual unity, we need patience. Some of you may have a translation that says long-suffering. The word literally means to be long-tempered. What's the opposite of that for most of us? Some of you said short. I read your lips. Short-tempered. It's the opposite of having a short fuse. Now let me say this. Some people I've been around tell me, you just need to, that's just who I am. And they're a Christian. That's just who I am and people need to get on board. No. You need to get on board with Jesus and get rid of that. There's no excuse for that. Thankfully, listen, God is patient with us, right? God is long-suffering with us, right? How many of you like for God to be short-tempered with you? Man, it'd be over with today, wouldn't it? It'd be over with today. God is patient toward us. A lack of patience shows a lack of humility and it shows a lack of love. 1 Corinthians 13 forces that love is patient. Now let me... Let me help you apply this here. How do you develop patience? Most of you like want to know the answer to that question, right? How many of you prayed, Lord, I want patience, and I want it right now, right? Let me let me let you in on something. Um, you need to be prepared if you pray for patience from God. But guess what? Getting patience, it can be tough. Because God's got to get you in a position where He can develop patience in your life. So be careful when you pray for that. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just warning you. Be prepared. How do you develop patience? Are you ready? 
by meditating on the patience that Jesus has shown you. God's been patient with us, right? What would happen to us if Jesus had our level of patience? Man, we'd all be gone, right? How do you develop patience? You meditate on the patience and the long-suffering and the grace and mercy of God toward you. Notice there, to preserve spiritual unity, we need to bear with one another in love. Uh, This means to put up with each other in love. It means bearing with someone's shortcomings and their quirks. You know some people who's got quirks? You can shake your head, yes. Guess what? You've got them too. Someone's looking at you going, that's strange. <laughs> it means bearing with someone's shortcomings in the court. It means giving the other person room to be different in non-moral areas. That's the key. Non-moral areas. We're to give people room to be different. We're to bear with one another. But notice what it says there. To preserve unity, we need to bear with one another. How? What's the next two words? This is where you respond back. In love. Don't just put up with someone. Do it how? In love. Most of us can put up with people, right? But it's one thing to do it how? In love. Uh, I gave you a definition a long time ago about biblical love. Love seeks the highest good of the other person. You're to be long-suffering with people and you're to do it in love. Love keeps bearing with one another from turning in to grit your teeth and seethe on the inside kind of patience. Most of us can do that, right? We can put up with people, but on the inside, we're what? Yeah. That's the way we are. We can put up with people, but on the inside, man, it's just... Let me ask you, is that love? No. It also prevents indifference. If you see someone doing something that will lead to spiritual harm in their life, love cares enough to help that person. When you turn away from that and say, that's messy, that's not my business, that's not love. Bearing with one of the means that you wait and you pray for the right time, but love motivates you to get involved. You cannot be indifferent. And this is, listen... And this is not just the responsibility of the preacher. It's the responsibility of all believers. Uh, More to come on that next week. You just make you a note because that will come up in the next verses 7 through 16. Look at verse 3. To preserve spiritual unity, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Some translations use the word endeavoring or diligently keeping. We're to be eager to maintain. The idea is that of deliberate effort. How many of you have been eager about something, right? You give an exceptional effort to make sure that happens. It has the idea of doing something with haste or speed, which suggests that we're not to allow disunity to fester. We're to go after it quickly. And Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 19... So then we pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. There's to be the exercise of effort to preserve this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verses 1-3 through show us that 
unity, spiritual unity is important. But now in verses 4 through 6, we see the basis for this unity. If you'll notice here, Paul points out seven one statements. The emphasis here is on the oneness believers share in the gospel. Now I want to clarify something here. The idea of unity is not unity at any cost. Okay, There can be disunity over doctrine. Good doctrine versus bad doctrine. The Bible nowhere calls us to be unified when there's bad doctrine. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote, Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. The unity that's being talked about here is unity in Jesus, unity in the gospel. And just a reminder, according to verse 3, this unity already exists. We are to be eager to what? Maintain it. We're not to make it happen. It's there because we're what? One in Christ. We're to be eager to maintain that unity. Notice in verse 4, we'll go through these ones. There is one body. The church is the one body of Christ. God has made us fellow members of the body regardless of our age, gender, race, economic status, or anything else. We are all one people. This unifies us. It's unity based on the shared life in Christ. You sit here this morning, and if you know Jesus, regardless of what other differences you have, you are unified in Jesus because of that salvation. We're one body, and the gospel unifies us. Notice there's one spirit. All believers share a common beginning. And that's salvation, which is brought about by what? The Holy Spirit regenerating our dead lives. The Holy Spirit inside of believers creates unity and allows us to maintain this unity. Remember Paul praying that we would have the power, the strength within our inner being? Here's an implication of this one body, one spirit. There shouldn't be competition between other churches that preach the gospel who are growing and are healthy. You know what we have a tendency to do sometimes as a church when another church is growing? They're growing in number and they're growing healthy and they're preaching the gospel. What do we have a tendency to do? If it ain't happening here, we don't like it, right? I heard J.D. Greer say one time, he prayed for revival to come in the life of his church. And he said, one day the Lord spoke to him, not in an audible voice, but the Spirit of God ministered to him. He said, J.D., would you be okay if I sent it to the church down the road? And J.D. says, I'm not so sure about that. I want it here. But God said, what if I send it down the road? Would you be happy if I send it down there? It would be foolish for my kidneys to be jealous that my liver's healthy, wouldn't it? It would be foolish for us to be jealous of another church who's growing in the gospel and seeing God do great things. Notice he says there, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The focus here is this one hope. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This call here is the same calling of salvation that Paul mentioned in verse 1. And this call to salvation has what? One hope. This one hope is the promise of eternal life. That's our hope, right? As we sit here today, living in a fallen world where there's sickness, death, and illness, 
we have this hope, right? We have this hope of salvation and the promise of what? Eternal life. New heavens, new earth. But this hope also refers to the second coming of Jesus. You and I don't think much on that, right? We get occupied with life and we don't give a thought to Jesus coming the second time for us. We get so busy we don't think about that. You and I sitting here today as professing Christians, if we've trusted in Christ, we have one hope together. We're sitting here today and we're hoping, we're looking for Jesus. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says this return of Jesus is the blessed hope. 1 John Chapter 3 verse 2 says that the second coming of Jesus will be changed to be like Him. Think about that. The person sitting next to you, if they know Jesus, when Jesus comes back, they'll be completely changed to be like Him. They won't be God now. Don't, don't go too far with this. They'll be changed to be like Him. Meaning that you'll never sin again. You'll finally be perfect. The very next verse in 1 John chapter 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. This hope is what unifies us. This hope is what brings us together and binds our lives together. And we want other people to have this hope, right? So what is our focus in unity in the gospel? It's that the world would have this hope that we have. Notice it says in verse 5, One Lord. All true born-again believers profess and proclaim Jesus as Lord. Do you hear what I said? All true, all genuine, authentic believers profess Jesus is Lord. Why one Lord? Notice, one Lord. It's because Jesus, listen, Jesus owns you sitting here today. We belong to Him. He's the head. We're members of the body and He is the one who controls us. We submit to His authority. And how do we submit to His authority? This is our rule book for obeying and following Jesus. We submit to His Word, the Bible. If someone denies what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus, that He is fully God, fully man, they're not in unity. If someone claims that Jesus was just a man and He was not God, that's where unity comes apart. If they deny His substitutionary death on the cross is the only means by which we can be saved, we're not unified. If they deny the need to submit everything to Jesus as Lord and to live so as to please Him, we are not one with Him. And listen, there are people today who claim salvation in Jesus, but they, they put off this Lordship salvation. <coughs> You cannot enjoy true fellowship with a professing Christian who by a disobedient life denies the Lordship of Jesus. Let me say that again. You cannot truly enjoy fellowship with a professing Christian who by a disobedient life denies the Lordship of Jesus. Someone who professes to know Jesus but denies Him as Lord and lives their life out from under the Lordship of Jesus, there's not unity there with you and them. And one thing is for sure, you should be careful in affirming their salvation. Notice I said be careful. You should be loving and and long for them to know the truth of the gospel. 
Notice it says one faith. One faith here refers to the core truths that are essential for the gospel. We may disagree over certain doctrines in the Bible. There are some that are essential doctrines that every believer must affirm. And I would say those are the essential core things about Jesus and the gospel. You and I, we have different um, doctrines about things. You, you talk to enough Baptists, you talk to enough uh, Methodists, enough Presbyterians about the second coming of Jesus, and you know this, right? There's three different views on how He'll come back and when. You know, I don't have fallen out with somebody that disagrees with me on that, but they tell me that Jesus is not coming back. we got a problem. Every true believer holds that the eternal God sent Jesus, who took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, that He lived a perfect, sinless life, and He offered Himself on the cross to pay the debt for sinners. He was raised bodily from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and He's coming back to judge the world and to reign forever. If you believe that, we have what? We have unity. If a person denies any of these core truths of the gospel, he does not hold to the one faith and there's no basis for unity with him. Notice it says there, one baptism. This refers to the act of water baptism. Water baptism is where those who have trusted in Jesus confess Him publicly in obedience to the command to be baptized. When you see someone come down the steps into the water and they're being baptized, or if you have done that, you know what's taking place? You're declaring to the world, I'm a new creation in Christ. The old things are gone. The new things are coming. And I now live my life under the Lordship of Jesus. So when someone goes into that water to be baptized, that's a big deal, right? So somewhere after that, coming out, their life ought to give representation of what they proclaimed when they got in the water. So there's a disruption of unity there. The focus on the basic meaning of baptism is identifying with Jesus. When a person is baptized, it signifies that he's totally identifying himself with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To kind of put this into a small package here, Paul again is talking about the church. He means that God is the Father of all believers. He's over them in a personal sense as Lord. He is through all believers in the sense of working through them. And He is in all in the sense of personally indwelling them. Notice there the four alls. The idea is that there's a common unity that we share as true believers. If God is the Father of all believers, then we are what? Brothers and sisters. If He is over all, then we all submit to Him as our sovereign Lord. We hold His Word as the authority for our faith and practice. If He is through all, I must trust that He's working through my brothers and sisters as well as through me. And just in case you didn't know this, you're not the only servant of God. He has others. If He is in all, then you must see God in other believers. When you serve other people, who are you serving? You're serving God. When you love other brothers, you are loving Him. So what does that mean? Not to love another brother is what? Not to love Jesus. You say, well, I would never say that. You don't have to say it. You can act it. 
Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent them. What is Jesus praying for? That just as He and the Father are one, He's praying for what? Us to be one in Him. And what was the purpose of that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, that's the purpose of our unity in the gospel. So that the world may see and believe. Here's the application. It's quite simple. We are to pursue being a healthy church. Now, that's not a statement as in we're unhealthy and we need to get healthy. We need to pursue it. We need to do what? We need to maintain. We do this when we're characterized by this unity. We must walk worthy of the gospel by being eager to maintain true unity. And listen, it already exists, so we are to preserve that. To preserve Christian unity, we must make sure that we're founded on the biblical basis for unity. And that is the truth that we just studied here in 1-6. through When we do so, what does Jesus say? We are a wonderful witness to a watching world. The relationships we develop with other Christians, and more importantly, the relationships we develop here at Redbud Baptist Church, These relationships are to reflect what God has done and what He is doing in us. Making us one in Christ and conforming us to the image of Jesus. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love contribute to this oneness. As we walk out these things, relying on the Spirit to empower us, we maintain the unity God created among His people. And again, church, what is the purpose of that? We are a wonderful witness to the world. You listen carefully to your co-workers and to your neighbors who are lost. The world is chaotic for them, right? It's that way for us sometimes, but for the world, for them, it's kind of just like, it's just all this craziness going on. And listen, they should be able to look at us who live in this world and profess Jesus, and they ought to be able to see something different about us. They ought to be able to see that, man, those people, there's a community, there's something about these people. What is it about them? Can you, can you see and understand how if it's the direct opposite of that, how when they look at us, they go, I don't need that. I don't want that. This unity in the gospel is a witness to a watching world. For the world, for our community to know that salvation has come and that Jesus is Lord, we just can't proclaim it. We've got to walk it. We've got to live that in order for the watching world to see us. And let me say this to those of you here today who are lost. In order to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, you have to know that you've been called. And to know that you've been called, you must know that you've believed in Jesus as Savior. Because there's no other way of salvation, except through Christ. You don't obtain salvation by beginning this walk. We don't earn it by the way we conduct our lives. We come to salvation through faith, and then we begin to walk in the way that Paul is calling us to walk. And so my question for you, have you put your faith in Jesus today?
Do you know Him? If you don't, then my call to you today is to look to Him. Realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. He's God's substitute who died in your place so that if you believe in Him, regardless of the depths of your sin, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. No one sitting on the pew today has a big enough issue that God cannot save you. I have people tell me all the time, preacher, you just understand, i got issues. Well, i got them too. Mine are redeemed. God can redeem your issues. God's arm is not too short that He can't reach out and save whoever's sitting here today who's lost. No one is beyond the reach and grace of God. No one. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there's not a sin in your life, there's not an issue in your life so big that God can't save you that if you'll repent of that sin and call on Him, He will redeem your life. Let's pray.